Hello there, this is Tom Switzer. I'm from the Centre for Independent Studies. Today, Gladys Berejiklian. She's been New South Wales Premier since early 2017. She's a former Transport Minister and Treasurer in the New South Wales Liberal Government. And she's been a Liberal MP in the State Parliament for the best part of two decades. Now, when Gladys Berejiklian was elected Premier in March 2019, the Australian Financial Review editorialised, quote, though criticised as a bland technocrat, in an age of shouty politics, that could be a distinguishing plus for her. <laughs> and with that, it's a great pleasure to welcome the Premier, Gladys Berejiklian. Hey Tom, how are you? That's one of the better quotes. Well, we're a think tank, so we like uh, bland technocrats. Yeah, so. yeah no, I, I'm quite happy with that. If that's the, the, the best thing that can be said about me, I'm quite happy with that. And we should stress that you were originally scheduled to deliver a luncheon address, but because we couldn't get 100 people into the room at the same time, uh, we couldn't do it, so we're grateful you could do this. Yes, now, talking about COVID-19, the New South Wales government, New South Wales economy has suffered more than most economies, and that's largely because of higher education and tourism. What do you propose to get the New South Wales economy out of this government-induced recession? Oh, Tom, we've already done a number of things, but you're right. New South Wales has been particularly hurt because of our reliance on the services sector as well. We have a very diverse economy and the services sector in particular has been hit very hard. Uh, but what we've managed to do is some sectors we've allowed to continue during the pandemic completely. So construction, infrastructure, quite a few sectors um, in a COVID safe way have continued their operation without any level of interference, which has been a positive. And in some areas have actually been able to accelerate what they're doing because when people aren't moving around, and there's no traffic, it actually allows you to do things you could do otherwise. We've also accelerated some planning approvals for major projects, both government led and private sector led to really boost that level of infrastructure. So we see infrastructure uh, pipeline and also the private investment that comes off the back of that is key to our economic recovery as well as supporting businesses get through the next couple of months uh, we in excess of 13 billion dollars worth of stimulus into the economy whether it's tax deferrals or whether it's direct grants to businesses um, so that's been a key part of this as have um, uh, a number of things we've been able to do. Our reliance on digitisation has proved really positive. So the pandemics really showed us that we can deliver better services to our citizens in different ways. And we're intending to keep a lot of that reform post pandemic. This yeah. allows us to be more efficient and then we can put resources where they're needed. Talking about private infrastructure, Jonathan Friedland from The Guardian uh, equipped at the start of this crisis that um, just as there are no um, uh, atheists on a sinking ship. There are no free marketeers uh, during a pandemic, but you've made it clear, as has uh, the Treasurer Dom Perrottet and the, and the Commonwealth, that this will be a private sector-led recovery. But just say that private sector infrastructure slows down. How much of a risk is that? Well, look, that really relies on us as well. We, we notice in New South Wales, business confidence and private investment goes up when we invest in public infrastructure. That gives business confidence to keep investing. And that's exactly what we're doing. We recently announced a $100 billion pipeline over the next four years. And then on top of that, we've accelerated $3 billion worth of infrastructure. So when you build a new road or a new rail line, a new school or hospital, it does give the private sector confidence to come in off the back of that as well. Uh, but also through the planning process, the red tape we've been able to cut during this process has been fantastic. And I want to thank local communities. Um, and I've been suffering as well, so I'm amongst uh, the hundreds of thousands. But we've actually allowed construction hours to increase, weekends after hours, to really allow that sector to keep providing jobs. But also as an employer ourselves, um, I don't necessarily think it's something to brag about, but 10% of all employees work for the New South Wales government. We're the largest employer 
in the nation and we've made sure that all of our public servants have kept their jobs and been able to contribute to the economy. But just say the international travel ban continues for another year, which is obviously conceivable, it could go longer, that'll have a huge impact on tourism especially, but also higher education. How's the New South Wales government prepared for those uh, budget declines. Well, Tom, interestingly, Australia as a whole loses out on the terms of trade on tourism. We have more Aussies go overseas and spend the dollar than, than travellers come here. And that's why I've been so vocal on keeping the borders open because the interstate travel and increasing our, you know, I've got a list of things I'm embarrassed to admit I've not seen in Australia. So I think the, the travel by, domestic, by, by our own citizens will be huge to that. In relation to the universities, we are considering with the federal government how we can welcome back some international students. I mean, we've already um, given the universities a boost through some support, through direct funding. Uh, we also know that there's quite a lot of uh, international students already here and, and supporting them to be able to resume their studies. But we are also considering when it would be the best time to welcome international students back, assuming, of course, um, that they will have to face stringent quarantine requirements as do all of our overseas travellers because touch wood, um, again, the vast majority of cases in New South Wales, small as they are, are coming from overseas travellers which are in quarantine. Okay, are you still committed to the wage freeze proposal for public servants in New South Wales? Absolutely, because uh, I think the biggest challenge for our citizens will be job security. So 90% of people who aren't employed by the New South Wales government um, have had hours reduced, hours slashed, reduction in wages. They don't have job security. Our public servants do, and that's what we're saying to all of them. We appreciate uh, some of you may feel uncomfortable with not getting a pay rise, but at least all of you are guaranteed a job, which 90% of our population isn't. But you need to get support in the parliament. Labor and One Nation are opposed to it. They say it's a bad time to antagonise nurses and teachers who have been on the front line during this pandemic. Look, we appreciate it's not a good time. Uh, nothing is a good time during a pandemic. Um, the Industrial Relations Commission will, will sort out those issues. The, we, we passed a regulation, the, the New South Wales Parliament through the Upper House disallowed that regulation. So now the matter's with the Industrial Relations Commission, it's a matter for them. But please also remember that year on year, we've been providing um, the wage increase um, automatically uh, in excess of the CPI. And so all we're saying is during the pandemic, everybody is suffering. Everybody's going through a really hard time. 221,000 people in New South Wales lost their jobs just in April, like from the end of March to the beginning of May. And once JobKeeper runs out, there could be hundreds of thousands of additional citizens mm. which form the Centrelink queue. So, so we are saying to our public servants, we know it's a difficult time for everybody, but please just take this pause, not even a cut. We're just saying don't get your pay rise. Sure. And, and for the last quarter, it was actually deflationary in terms well, of the Virtually CPI. everything you've said there, uh, CIS would concur, but the City Morning Herald in an editorial, and it's generally been supportive of your conduct during the pandemic, generally speaking, but they say a pay freeze from the end of the year will cut spending at a time when the economy is struggling. So how would you respond to the Herald? Well, I would say the best thing we can do to encourage confidence and spending is job security. If you don't have a job, if you don't have a secure job, you're not gonna spend a dollar. So at least our 410,000 public servants know they have a job, uh, whereas 90% that are in the non-government sector don't have that surety. 
And what we need to do is if people have confidence they've got a job, they're going to keep their job, they'll spend. As you know, Tom, uh, during this pandemic, we've had some of the highest rates of savings ever, right? During depressions, people are scared to spend. But if you know you've got a job and it's secure, you're more likely to spend. And that's why we're really keen uh, to provide that job security for all of our workforce, not just those that work in government. Some market-friendly economists might say this is a good time to have a more flexible IR arrangements for the very diverse New South Wales public sector employees. Are you open to that? Well, uh, well, we'd be well. We've got a wages policy which we're comfortable with, but um, we can't even, you know, even getting a wages freeze. But you couldn't review that cap of 2.5%, oh, couldn't you? No, we're not in that pro we're not in that space at all. Okay, now to aid in the recovery of hospitality and eventually tourism, will the government further wind back those lockout laws that uh, your predecessors put in place? Well, we have to to a great extent. But there's still pretty there's still restrictions imposed. Only in Kings Cross, really, in the main. Um, right. Everywhere else is consistent with. You know, some of the largest cities in the world, London, New York, are comparable to our position. King's Cross is the only exception, and that's because they have a lot of venues in a very small area. Uh, so King's Cross is the only exception. Federal State Relations, your predecessor, Mike Baird, Premier from what, April 2014 to early 2017, he says his biggest regret as Premier on Macquarie Street was his failure to reform state federal finances by raising the GST and with uh, a growth-friendly income tax cuts. Um, any plans to revisit the idea of tax reform? Well, uh, I've been leading the charge at a national level through COAG and now the National Cabinet of what I call dynamic federalism. Mm. So I think there's plenty we can do to improve federal-state relations. For one, there's, you know, scores, literally dozens of national partnership agreements between the Commonwealth and the states, which are completely unnecessary, bog us down in red tape. And there could be arrangements over a couple of million dollars, which takes so much time and energy. And I feel uh, we need to move towards a system which streamlines all of those, which has less duplication. I'd like to, to rearrange some of the arrangements. For example, you know, sometimes in, in, somewhere in a space like health, every time there's a reform to Medicare or GPs, it affects our emergency departments in New South Wales. So I think we need to have conversations about reducing duplication allocating uh, accountability, which is lacking. Early education is another example. We do preschools, the feds do childcare. It's confusing for parents and everybody. And I think we need to have good conversations during this time to reduce duplication red tape, which will improve financial state relations, also give the states a bit more discretion and uh, opportunity. Uh, and at the moment, um, through the GST payments, um, some of the inefficient states don't have incentive to reform. So we're always subsidising Queensland. They, you know, with all due respect to my colleague up there, she's uh, employing many more high debt, but employing a larger public service. Here in New South Wales, where we feel we're through our asset recycling, through our very strong um, business policy, are really making some difficult decisions. Um, but currently, there's no incentive for states to reform and do the right thing. And certainly, you know, less can be more for our citizens in terms of government intervention. So I think there are issues we need to really thrash. Okay, talk about federal state relations. We hear a lot about this national cabinet. What's 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 better about the national cabinet compared to say COAG? Less red tape. Right, because decision-making is direct and then we make decisions which are then implemented. But during the last three months, the decisions have been made at the National Cabinet only for Premiers to do different things on a virus-fighting <laughs> strategy, so... Yeah, well, well, I think what the National Cabinet does, which is respectful of the Federation, is give us a national framework within which each state can move 
at its in its own way because you know I always argue New South Wales should never succumb to the law of averages with a strong with a powerhouse economy of the nation with the highest population the most global city of Sydney is in obviously in New South Wales so I've I've never been someone who likes average I'm someone who likes above average and, and pushing ourselves and being our best. And so the law of averages doesn't work for a state like New South Wales. So therefore you would expect us to flex our muscles a bit. And to be fair to the feds, um, the state governments are the ones that are much closer to the operational things we need to do, the nuts and bolts. So in a health system, it's not just about the macro policy in Medicare, it's about how do you run the hospitals? How do you get the health information out? How are you doing all those specific operational things which are very specific to your state? So we bear the burden of the operations which in effect um, lends itself to why we make certain decisions the way we do. Education at the height of the coronavirus crisis, your government basically told parents uh, to keep their kids at home mm -hmm. um, and seven weeks basically, yeah. any regrets? No, not at all. I, I always said I wanted a no regrets policy and what that time allowed us to do was to, could you imagine, we've got 2,200 public schools, each of them now have an extra cleaning contract, which we had to negotiate. We've now got all the uh, resources each of those schools need to be COVID safe. Look around the world, a lot of systems, countries or states that were supposedly doing well, um, stopped kids going to school, then the kids went back and then they had to send them back home again. I don't want us to be in that stop-start position. The consistent medical advice uh, from experts to the National Cabinet from the start of this pandemic said it was safe for schools to remain open. And indeed, you listen to Talkback Radio, the letters pages of the Herald and the Telegraph, they say you've got a lot of parents, parents of children, particularly primary school uh, children, they say that the school, school closures were all pain and no gain. I don't agree with that at all. Yes, um, that, the advice was to keep schools open, which is exactly what we did. New South Wales kept all of our schools open. We essentially said, if you have no option but to send your children to school, that's fine. But we didn't understand what the virus was doing then, Tom, and I have zero regrets. In fact, I'm glad we did it the way we did. What if there's a second wave? Will schools remain open? Well, that's the point. Because we've done what we have, we are more confident now in keeping our schools open because we've got the extra cleaning contracts. We've got the hand sanitizers, the soap, uh, the procedures for teachers and students and we've already seen as, as, as other states have witnessed that if there has been a case in a school we've shut the school down temporarily and then reopened. We never had the confidence to do that because we didn't understand what the virus was doing. We didn't understand in fact that you have to worry more about the pickup when parents drop their kids off and pick them up is the highest risk because it's adults uh, hanging out with each other. So all these things that we didn't understand months ago we now do and that's why I'm, I'm so glad we took the decision we did when we did because now I've got more confidence of being able to keep our school system open no matter what happens into the future. What about students from socially disadvantaged backgrounds? My colleague Blaise Joseph, he's a scholar in education, he says, we know from a large body of international and Australian research, including a recent paper from us here at CIS, that school closures especially harm students from disadvantaged social backgrounds. What's your government going to do to identify the students who have fallen behind and ensure they catch up with their peers as soon as possible? Premier. Well, I say this, we have to put everything into context. Back in March, when we had over 200 cases in New South Wales, we were all stressing about life and death, worried about your loved ones. And in context, yes, it's easier for people who have higher socioeconomic backgrounds, who've got the technology at home, 
to be able to learn from home. But we've also done a lot through our public education system to make sure parents are tooled up with what they need. And what the learning from home did for us is really stretch the system to say, well, if this happens again, what do we need to do to provide every child without a quality of opportunity? But I've also, um, had reinforced to me that children are extremely resilient and yes seven weeks is a long time but if you take it in the context of keeping people safe and healthy and alive and not losing those those thousands of people that we could have if we didn't manage the pandemic you know every part of society suffered during the pandemic and and I'm confident that the system will be able to bounce back in fact um, what we've been able to do is also which is really um, a good segue for, for the curriculum review we announced today but what this period of time has also done for us is to work out what's important, the core subject. What, if you have limited time and resources, what does a child need to have? The child needs to have good literacy and numeracy skills. And for the older children, and even the younger ones who are learning coding from, from kindergarten, a good basis in STEM, they, that's where the jobs of the future are. And they're the core competencies we need all of our students to and have. And yet, so. yet, yet that plan has been scrapped for this year, correct? Yes, but that, that's just a, a one-off testing regime. I don't think we should be... It's seven weeks of school closures, that would surely affect. Yeah, but I don't think we should be overly concerned by that because it's not as though New South Wales is an island. Every nation, every state around the nation, but every nation around the world is going through this. So we're not an island, but what, what I do know, Tom, is that New South Wales is in a far stronger place than almost anywhere else in the world to be able to deal with these challenges and also the opportunities that come along as well. Now your government this week has announced a shake-up of the curriculum, tell us more. Absolutely, um, uh, I, the curriculum hasn't had a shake-up in New South Wales for more than 30 years, embarrassingly since I did the HSE, um, giving, away, <laughs> giving away my age. Late 80s. Yeah, exactly, when were <laughs> like you? Like me, 89, yeah, there you're you go. 88. Uh, yep. yeah. So uh, imagine, and then during that time, all these subjects crept in all these uh, concepts crept in which took away from the core competencies of literacy, numeracy and STEM or, or science, technology, engineering and maths. And it's so important for us to get back to those basics. So there are three prongs to our curriculum overhaul. Firstly, declutter. From next year, there'll be 20% reduction in the subjects offered uh, in high school in particular. We don't need to have things like puppetry or wearable art or circus tricks as part of a school curriculum. They can be part of a, a course that people want to do outside school or within the, the, a broader context of a core subject, but certainly not subjects in their own. Uh, and teachers will welcome this because teachers want to rely on teaching the core competencies and especially um, in years K to two we're going to focus much more on literacy and numeracy and make sure children have those basic competencies because it's found that unless children by the age of nine have a basic level of maths and reading it can set them back during their entire learning through life. Yeah but not everyone agrees again here's Blaise Joseph from CIS. Isn't it true that far from being back to basics the New South Wales curriculum review is actually proposing a radical overhaul of education that would see traditional A to E grades scrapped and an untimed curriculum where there would be no set standards for students by age group. Premier. Totally disagree with Blaze. Um, as much as he is respect, totally disagree with his assessment. Decluttering the, uh, the, the curriculum, getting back to core competencies, but also improving pathways for students in year 11 and 12 is the most uh, important reform we can take in education at this time. But it's also important to acknowledge that students shouldn't just be moved on simply because they've acquired a certain age. The vast majority of students will, 
But if a student doesn't have core competency in literacy or numeracy, we need to make sure they get that before they move on to the next level. Can you name one single high achieving school system anywhere in the world that has taken up this approach? But if you look at many Asian countries, they focus on the core competencies. They focus on math, science, You can't English. name one country? I can name, Surely well, you I could name, myself. I could, I could name several. But I don't, there's, there's several, uh, half the world adopts this. And in fact, interestingly, not that I would want to go to this model, but um, many nations that had a more centralised approach to education uh, did better. So many countries which had a very central, because we can't, we can't allow discretion to creep in as well. It's, with all due respect, you can't have different schools applying the curriculum in different ways. You have to be very black and white, which is what this overhaul will do. It will send a very strong message to principals and teachers about what the curriculum is about what they need to teach and teachers will welcome this. Teachers themselves are crying out for less red tape, more focus on the core competencies and less um, focus on things that don't really matter as much to children as does English, maths and science. Okay, finally, the last Premier to contest an election was Bob Carr in 2003. The next state election will be uh, 20. 23. By then, this government would have been in power for 12 years. Will, will you be around to contest I look that election? Forward, I look forward to it. But I have to say, during the pandemic, it's been a distant memory. Um, we've had other things to focus on and we will, but I'm... So that is a yes? Absolutely. <laughs> Gladys, it's been great to have you, you here too, at CIS. Tom. Thank you. For decades, CIS has been a fiercely independent voice, working tirelessly to deliver evidence-based public policy. We rely solely on the generosity of people like you for donations to advance our classical liberal cause. Check out the links on screen now to see how you can get involved with CIS. And to be notified of future videos, make sure you subscribe and click the notification bell.